Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today to be interviewing Dr. David Cressy to tell us all about his book, published by Oxford University Press, titled Shipwrecks and the Bounty of the Sea, which is a really interesting book that not only looks at kind of the numbers and the economics of shipwrecks, but more importantly, the social history. Um, what can shipwrecks tell us about how communities functioned, what the law actually said and how it was applied, um, what seafaring was like, what people's understanding of shipwrecks was in the early modern period, um, particularly from the reign of Elizabeth I in England to the end of the reign of George II. So quite an interesting time period and lots to get into with the fascinating topic of shipwrecks. So David, thank you so much for being here on the podcast. Well, thank you. I'm looking forward to talking to you. Before we get into all of the different shipwrecks and things around them, would you mind introducing yourself a bit to our audience and explaining why you decided to write this book? Sure. Um, I'm an English historian. Um, I think I still have an English accent, although I've lived in the United States for more than 50 years. Um, I was educated in England at Cambridge, but my entire professional career has been in North America. Um, I'm currently retired from uh, positions at Ohio State, and I have a continuing uh, honorary position which gives me library access in the Claremont College in California. Uh, what else can I tell you? Uh, this is my, I think, 15th book. Uh, the last six or seven have been with Oxford University Press, and I'm very pleased with the way they produce books. And what made you decide to write this one? Um, each book leads to another. Uh, I have finished a book about England's islands, about the Isles of Scilly, the Channel Islands, the Isle of Wight, uh, other offshore places and their relationship to the mainland, again, mainly in the 16th and 17th and early 18th century. And I became aware of how important shipwrecks were to these island economies. Uh, they were all surrounded by water. They were all surrounded by shipping. Shipping gets in trouble, and trouble shipping leaves uh, debris and cargoes on island beaches. I was aware of how important it was for islanders to be able to harvest these shipwreck uh, remains. Uh, in a place like the Sibby Isles off of the coast of Cornwall, there's hardly any timber, there's hardly any trees growing. So how do you build houses? There are no shops. Uh, there's about five or six hundred people who live there, but there's very few facilities. So how do you obtain supplies and clothing? Well, the answer is you harvest the remains of shipwrecks. In the Isles of Scilly in the 16th and 17th century, a lot of the building was made out of repurposed shipped timbers. And a lot of the clothing that people wore was uh, obtained from uh, dead uh, mariners. So having, having discovered the importance of shipwrecks in that island context, I began to explore shipwrecks on the coast of the rest of the coast of England and Wales, and that grew into becoming the books that you're now talking about. Um, the other theme that interests me in every book is the relationship between the central authority of the state and the local experience of the people. I've been struggling with or exploring those questions for, for generations uh, in, time, in my entire career. And in the case of shipwrecks, the same issues arise you have a state that's trying to regulate commerce. You have a legal system that's trying to produce order and justice. And you have ordinary people of different ranks in the periphery, in the coastal periphery, who are trying to make their way uh, sometimes on the margins of legality as well as the margins of the economy. So I thought we had an interesting subject here, and we can talk more about it. Well, you're not the only one um, that finds shipwrecks fascinating, as evidenced by we're having you here, but also um, in the time period as well. You talk about how shipwrecks um, happened, obviously, to large parts of England, but even throughout the country, even the bits that didn't experience shipwrecks in any particular way, they were very much part of English cultural consciousness. So could you take us through sort of kind of why such a thing and what were some of the ways that we can see this? 
Well, I think everybody in England knew about shipwrecks, even if they lived a long way from the coast. And actually, in England, it's hard to live a very long way from the coast. I think the majority of the English population lives within 20 miles of the sea. Um, people know about shipwrecks not just because they've experienced them or witnessed them, but because they read about them and heard about them from infancy. Um, every reader of the Bible is aware of the dangers of the sea, of the shipwrecks that uh, affected St. Paul, of shipwrecks that uh, affected Jonah. Uh, so there's a, a sermon tradition, a biblical tradition, which tells people how dangerous marina, uh, mar mar maritime experience can be. Um, and the story of St. Paul and his shipwrecks, free shipwrecks, including a spectacular shipwreck on the coast of Malta, uh, will be memorialized in sermons, um, sometimes in religious art. And so people would know about it. And more educated people who've read the classics or read the Renaissance literature, literature from 16th or 17th century Europe would again be familiar with shipwrecks in the in the in Homer's Odyssey, the string of shipwrecks. Coral Odysseus is shipwrecked ashore several times. Uh, Virgil's Aeneid has similar stories. Uh, classical literature and the literature of the European Renaissance is full of stories, adventure stories, moral stories, uh, maritime disasters. So if you're a Christian, like everybody was, or if you're highly literate, which relatively few people were, shipwrecks uh, will be part of your consciousness. You'd know about them. You'd know how to think about them, even before you witness one or experience one. So I would, I would agree that shipwrecks are part of the English cultural consciousness. They're also part of English law, um, and that's something I'd love for us to talk a bit about because there's some really interesting things in the book about kind of the gaps between the official bits of the law and what happens in practice. So before we get into that, what officially were the laws around shipwrecks? Well, the law is a developing law, but it's mostly based on statutes of the 13th century, medieval law, uh, growing medieval commerce led medieval kings and parliaments to attempt to regulate the aftermath of shipwrecks to adjudicate uh, who gets what after a ship goes down uh, or is wrecked on a beach, uh, whether the goods are free-for-all for anybody or whether there's some kind of due process to adjudicate who obtains what, and whether the merchants who ship the ship, who suffer lost, whether they're entitled to any kind of recompense or restitution. So there's a series of laws published in the 13th century, 14th century, and they're still the laws that are unchanged, at least on paper, in the 16th, 17th, into the 18th century. So they're very old laws. What they basically say is, in principle, in England, every wrecked item that comes ashore belongs to the crown, belongs to the king. The king gets first shot. Uh, that's a fundamental principle. It's part of the royal prerogative. Kings claim rights to the debris of the sea, the bounty of the sea, to wreckage on beaches, in the same way that they claim rights to so-called royal fish. So if a, a whale or a sturgeon or a dolphin are beached on the English coastline, in principle, they belong to the king. Now, in practice, the king delegates those rights to various agencies or authorities. So, so over time, the crown has granted the rights of wreckage, in Latin, recum maris, wreck of the sea, to uh, hereditary aristocrats, to landowners, to manorial lords, to uh, coastal communities, in some cases, to uh, urban cities, even to Cambridge colleges and to other institutions. So they all have delegated by the Crown a, a right to claim and adjudicate and control some of the material that comes ashore. So that sets up a mess. That sets up a, a mess for the lawyers to get busy with uh, who, who actually, in principle uh, and in practice, uh, gets to hold and control and distribute and protect ownership of whatever comes ashore from shipwrecks. 
uh, the law of, I think it's Edward I, makes a very curious uh, exception. He says, in principle, everything belongs to the king, and the king can allocate that to whoever he likes. But in certain circumstances, the, Lord, the, the merchants, the shepherds, the people on board the ship and the people who owned it and sent it, have rights to this material. And the circumstance is if, if, there are, if there are survivors. Yes, it says, if a dog or a cat or a person come alive ashore from a wreck, then it's not technically a wreck, it still belongs to them. So that sets up a, a whole framework of uh, exception which is in contract, in, in conflict with the overriding idea that everything belongs to the king and his agents. The merchants still have a right. To obtain that right, they have to prove that their ship was not actually wrecked and abandoned, but they retained some claim to it by virtue of their survival on it. it to prove this in practice required witnesses, it required justification, required documentation. But even if they managed to prove that they had survived the ship, or even if a dog or a cat had survived the ship, uh, and that they still had a claim on the goods, there were parts of those goods which would have to be given away, uh, usually a percentage, sometimes a third, sometimes a half, is forfeit to the king or the landowner. And even to persuade the local courts or the local agency to allow them to retrieve their property, what's left after being smashed on the beach and wrecked by the sea, uh, they'd have to pay fees, they'd have to uh, make bribes, they have to negotiate. So all of this means that this juicy work for the laws um, and multiple claimants. In, in practice, if a if a merchant ship wrecks on the coast, say, of Sussex or Cornwall in the 16th or 17th century, uh, what happens? Local people first on the scene come down and see if there are any survivors. Usually they try and help the survivors to shore and take some kind of shelter and to see what the sea has thrown up. The sea is a great source of, of mystery and of bounty. So the ship itself, or the wreckage of the ship, produces all sorts of useful items, sails, cables, guns, lots of timber, plus its lading, whatever cargo it is carrying. And cargo could be barrels of wine, it could be bales of cloth, it could be loads of timber. I mean, anything that's transported by sea can end up on land. So the local, local people get first shot when they're first on the land. But very rapidly, uh, authority of some kind shows up representing either the local landowner, the lords of the manor, uh, county agency, the wardens of the sink ports in southern England, or some agency of the king. So you have officials on the scene, uh, officials trying to regulate the process, while ordinary people, local people, are trying to unload and handle the stuff. Um, and then the aftermath of that, inquiries into it, commissions of investigation, lawsuits uh, could stretch on for months, even years, producing the paperwork that I've used to write this book. So the law is is explicit, uh, is set forth in statute, but it's ringed around with all sorts of local practicalities and customs and exceptions uh, that make for clear resolution but very difficult. And from my point of view, that's just wonderful because it produces all sorts of depositions and, and complaints and documentation, which makes it possible to write history. Very much so. And I, I would definitely point listeners um, to the book where particular court cases, you go into a lot of detail with primary sources to not only help us understand those complexities you've just taken us through, but also some of the kind of color of the arguments. Um, it definitely seemed like some of the exchanges could get heated. And one of the kinds of... Um, especially sort of prickly bits in a lot of ways, seems to be this role of the local community um, that you've described a little bit there, which 
in many ways, there, there's this reputation, perhaps even a myth, of the plunderers, the pillagers, right? That running down to the beach and taking everything they can and hiding it away from the people who rightfully own it. Though, of course, the explanation you've just given us explains just how complicated <laughs> determining who rightfully owns it is. To what extent, given that you have gone into all of the records and pieced out what this really looked like, to what extent are those ideas of plunderers and pillagers of especially the local communities accurate? Yeah. Uh, to, to start with, there's a lot of running down to the beach and hiding away and concealing the stuff that comes ashore. Um, there's also a lot of deception going on, um, dissimulation uh, and hiding of material. But there's also a sense that you have obligations. Um, the communities have obligations. Let me backtrack and say that I see this whole project as a work of social history about coastal communities, as well as a maritime history about ships in trouble. So the, the interface of the book is where the land and the sea come together and where the local communities along the coastline, uh, remember 18 English counties have coastlines, uh, an awful lot of large number of uh, villages and townships and parishes and manors that abut the sea, uh, their experience is primarily an, a terrestrial experience, it's land-based. The sea is their neighbor. The sea is providing them with these these windfalls of occasional uh, wealth that come from wrecks. And it's also bringing them distressed mariners who sometimes have to be, their bodies have to be buried or their wounds have to be dressed and then they have to be helped. So I think the people in those communities are accustomed to the, we're coming ashore of ships. They know what to do. And they know how to get what they can. But they also know they have obligations. They have moral obligations to their neighbors and to distressed seamen. Uh, there is a myth, which is entirely unfounded, that uh, wreckers set false lights and enticed ships ashore, and that when mariners survived ships and struggled ashore, they were hit on the head and dispatched by wreckers who wanted them out of the way. There's absolutely no evidence in English history and almost none in European history to substantiate that myth. It's a canard. It's just not true. Uh, the reality is that if someone comes ashore, he's a, whether he's a fellow Englishman or a foreign sailor, uh, an alien from, from uh, far away, uh, human obligation is to provide them with some kinds of assistance. And the moral uh, for that, or the model for that, is the story of St. Paul in the Bible, when Paul's crew is shipwrecked and in distress on the coast of Malta. And with great difficulty, they come ashore, uh, exhausted and damaged and hurt, uh, and in deep trouble, and they're given hospitality. They're given warmth, shelter, clothing, uh, assistance of all kinds to make their lives uh, continue. And that moral is taught in English parishes. It's taught in sermons, and it may be ingrained in, in human nature. So the reality is that if a sailor in distress or a crew in distress managed to get ashore from a shipwreck, they're likely to find some help. Uh, they're likely to find shelter, warmth, uh, assistance to deal with their wounds uh, and to bury their dead. That's not the primary concern of the locality, however. The locality sees this as an opportunity to take whatever the sea offers. The sea offers uh, the cargoes and the goods of ships, merchant ships. It offers the fragments of the ships themselves. And all that is up for grabs on the beach. Now, it might take several hours, it might take several days to successfully strip a beach of the fruits of a shipwreck. All the while, the sea is beating on that ship, the surf is hitting it, the rocks are raping it, and ships are breaking apart. So it doesn't take very long for the ship to break up and the goods to disappear. So it's a little bit of a race against time. Uh, the community comes out, neighbors come out, there are reports of a uh, hundred people 200 people, even 500 people gathering from nearby villages to assist in the 
the, uh, you could call it plunder, or you could call it redistribution of the goods from the ship. And most of the depositions we have, most of the accounts we have, and they're very detailed, talk about how cooperative people are with each other. They work in family groups, they work in neighborly groups, they work in, in gangs or teams of, of five or six people at a time, uh, sharing equipment, bringing in tractors or, or horse-drawn uh, equipment, carts, uh, like boats, and so on. And under these, under the supervision of constables, under the supervision of the authorities, under the supervision of representatives of uh, the lords of the manor or the officers of the crown, uh, they move these things to safety on the beach. And then comes the question of who gets what distribution. And again, they are drawn to kind of informal um, distribution based on their understanding of law. Uh, usually that the crown or its agents or the lords of the manor, the landowner in the area, gets first share. He's usually getting, uh, by right, the best cable from the ship, the best anchor from the ship, and sometimes a third or a half of any goods that are saved from the ship. Uh, the merchants would claim all of it or half of it or some of it, but would have difficulty in practice in exercising those claims. And the people who did the saving, even if they're not concealing or stealing or plundering the stuff for themselves, would expect payment for the goods that they've saved. They put in labor, they, they risk their lives, they've been in cold water amongst rocks and danger, and they expect, and are usually given, uh, a reward for that activity. So that for, the, for, the, for the people in the community, this is an opportunity not only to grab whatever the beach offers, but also to earn some extra money uh, assisting the authorities and assisting the survivors in handling the, the, the gear. And as you point out, these uh, things are frequent. Uh, there's a surprisingly large number of shipwrecks around the coast of England. Uh, it's estimated that 1 in 20 or 1 in 25 uh, voyages goes wrong. So the, the, so the frequency of shipwrecks rises with the expansion of shipping. Uh, so uh, lots of opportunities to, to get involved in the goods on the beach and the distribution and in the subsequent arguing about who got what and who did what. And I say one more thing. These local records, uh, particularly the inquiries generated by the High Court of Admiralty, where uh, merchants or shippers or local contestants can bring a case, they are very productive of documentation. Uh, they use procedures, the same procedures as the ecclesiastical courts. They follow principles of uh, civil law, Roman law, rather than English common law. And they produce acres and acres or reams and reams of depositions. Depositions are statements of witnesses in which they are explaining what they did, who they did it with, who they saw, and what happened. And it's sometimes an extraordinary uh, or verbatim detail, if you get a sense of this drama unfolding. Absolutely. That was evident um, in the book. I wonder if you might help us understand then, given um, this kind of frequent, cooperative, collaborative, obviously to some extent argumentative nature of this process, where does the myth of kind of the barbarous villager come from in this context? Um, I'm not sure where it comes from. It's It's widespread. It's international. I think it's ancient as well. Um, I think it partly hinges on cleavages in class and culture. The people who own ships, people who own cargoes, uh, are part of the elite. The people who uh, adjudicate those things are often part of the elite. They're legal or political or, or military people. And they sometimes look down on, or often look down on, the culture and behavior of the common people. Um, I think it's endemic in early modern, medieval, perhaps ancient culture for the elite to um, disparage the, the poor and the ordinary, the humble and the local. I think there's a long tradition of dismissing the peasantry or the common people as barbarous because they're not cultivated, not cultured, they're not Latin speakers, Greek speakers. 
So I think it has a long heritage. Um, and it may be true that the English elite in the 16th and 17th century is dismissive of, um, perhaps even fearful of, the common people and calls them then barbarous. Um, historiographically, uh, I think we can be well certain, uh, there was a very influential essay written by a historian named John Rural in the early 1970s. The first and really the best essay on wrecking shipwrecks uh, from a legal and social point of view. And his evidence came mostly from late 18th and early 19th century Cornwall. And he discovered that many of the accounts of shipwrecks written by the elite, written by aggrieved merchants, written by lawyers, talked about this activity on the beach as being barbarous thunder. And that becomes the sort of the standard view of what's going on. It's barbarous thunder. Uh, the, the, the people on the beach are behaving like savages, that there's a lot of violence and um, disruptive behavior. Um, that's the myth. Um, there may be elements of truth in that in late 18th and early 19th century Cornwall, but none of the evidence that I've seen from 16th to 17th century England around the entire coastline of England supports it. Um, the evidence by contrast is, of, as you say, essentially collaborative behavior, uh, customary behavior by people who understand their place in society. They understand uh, the importance of being deferential and obedient to authority. They cooperate to a large degree. They may dissimulate, they may lie, uh, they may hide evidence. But by and large, uh, there is no conduct. There is no savagery. Uh, there's no pillage. Uh, there is rather the, the orderly um, process of moving stuff from sea to shore. What's going on with shipwrecks in England, and I guess everywhere in Europe, is a transfer of material assets from the maritime community of sailors and merchants to the terrestrial community of coastal, coastal inhabitants and, and people inland who are linked into their hinterland. So there's a transfer of goods. And you know, it may be hasty, it may be rough and ready, but it's not barbarous or savage. So I think that's an unfair myth. Uh, it may be hard Thank to get rid of that myth. Just as it's hard to get a mess about false lights and enticing ships deliberately ashore. Uh, but there it is. It's the duty of the historian to tell the story as best the evidence provides. Oh, exactly, which is very helpful to help us um, myth bust that. So thank you for that answer. Um, I'd love to pick up on something you mentioned um, a little bit earlier, the kind of who gets what from the shipwreck and it's divided up sort of this much to this and this much to that. Um Given the time period of the book, obviously, in many ways, the world of Elizabeth I is quite different from the world of George II. So were there ways that um, different actors, w were there changes over time in terms of who benefited from shipwrecks? No, not really. There was a change in law in the 18th century. I mentioned the law of governing shipwrecks and governing all these processes is a medieval law, uh, is amended twice in the 18th century to, to stiffen the penalties and make it uh, more of a, cr a crime rather than a, an economic activity. But I think that the story is still one of um, different actors, different classes, different agencies, all dipping into the shipwreck pile uh, and coming away with different uh, amounts and, and priorities. The myth, again, and it comes back to the early historiography, is that it's, it's the poor people in coastal villages, uh, the tinners, the miners, the mariners, the shipper, fishermen and their wives who were rushing onto the beach and stealing everything uh, and getting it for themselves. And was, as I point out, they are, they are engaged in, in self-interest, but they're also engaged in, in a service of, of assisting uh, the survivors and the shippers and local landowners and public authorities uh, and as well. So different state, different groups to get different amounts. In fact, the common people who do the work end up with least. Uh, if there's 200 people involved in a recovery of material from 
the wreck. And they walk away with whatever they can carry, a few jars of oil, a few pieces of eight, a few pieces of cloth, and that's, that's going on all the time. They're pretty pecky pickings. They're not great treasure. No one's getting rich out of this. And if there are rewards for their labor, either paid by the Lord of the Manor or by surviving merchants or other interests, that reward, financial percentage perhaps of the value of the cargo that they collect, has to be shared between maybe 200 people. And it might end up with just a few shillings uh, at most a pound or two, uh, not going to make a huge difference to uh, in anybody's economy. So for the common people, this is an opportunity to get a little bit on side. It's not going to be uh, a great source of wealth. For the landowners, for the lords of the manor, uh, who claim rights to shipwreck by virtue of their grant from the king or their ancestors' grant from the king or the holding of particular manor or property, uh, they're going to get perhaps a quarter to a half of the value of one of us for the site, for the shore. Uh, and we know from a variety of sources that uh, a lot of it doesn't even get recorded, but barrels of wine, uh, hogsheads of wine in particular, are just taken straight from the beach into the local gentleman's cellar or house to be shared with his family and friends, or perhaps sold to wine merchants further inland. Um, much of the material, the large, wealthy bits of material, um, sail, sails, guns, anchors, um, commodities of all sorts, uh, go primarily to the local landowner. So the primary, the la- one of the largest beneficiaries of this activity are the gentry, the gentry who are lords of manors in coastal areas, uh, see this as, as an asset, as, as a, a part of their wealth, part of their entitlement. Um, well, finally, the crown. The crown is sort of supervising all this and has residual rights to it. But if something very, very valuable comes ashore, occasionally there are bullion ships, ships carrying treasure, ships carrying ingots of silver, bags of pieces of eight, uh, golden coins. They show up from time to time on the coast of England, on the coast of the Isle of Wight, on the coast of Sussex, uh, on the coast of Cornwall and Devon. And whenever something very, very valuable is at stake, the Crown moves in its agents rapidly to take possession. Um, John I's Admiralty, for example, takes possession, I think it's about 5,000 pounds worth of silver for one wreck on the Isle of Wight, uh, leaving the other claimants, the local landlords, the local inhabitants, and any survivors of the wreck or their agents to, to deal with the, the, the residue. So if, something, if, if the wreck is very, very rich, it, it usually the crown through one of its agencies, the Admiralty or the St. Quartz or the Duchy of Lancaster, that comes in and creams off the, the best of it, the richest of it. Next is the local landlords, the gentry who, who come out well with it, and the ordinary people are also third in line. The biggest losers, the biggest losers in this whole process are the mariners on board the ship and the shippers and merchants who own the cargoes. Uh, although the law of Edward I says that if a survivor is available to prove the ownership of the goods, they still have a right to them. In practice, they are overridden in practice, it was very, very difficult for them to prove or to obtain uh, any, any kind of financial uh, redress. There's so many uh, ways in which the other participants and claimants could come run the range around them. And the reality is, if, if a ship wrecks, often the crew is dead. Often their crew uh, drowns, or there are very few survivors. There are dozens of accounts in which wrecks come ashore with a crew of perhaps 30 people, of which there's only three left, of a crew of a dozen people, of one, one survives. Uh, it's just a terrible toll uh, that shipwrecks in wooden ships on English beaches end up with very high mortality. 
uh, there are accounts of rigid speeches being littered with dead bodies. Naked bodies ripped, uh, the clothes ripped off by the sea and the rocks. Um, that's all of which have to be identified, if they can be. Sometimes they can't, and 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 buried. So the, the survivors, the, the mariners, lose life. They lose property. They come ashore often um, damaged, ill, uh, wounded from their ordeal. Uh, and then they may get their lives, but they've lost their goods. Um, so in that hierarchy of things, if the crown does best, if there's a lot at stake, it's the landowners, the gentry who generally prosper from these things. It's the local inhabitants, their tenants, their neighbors, the villagers who get a limited on the side and the mariners and the merchants who lose out. Hmm. And from your description, your answers already, you've given us some ideas of what might be in the shipwrecks that can be useful. Um, obviously, from the ships themselves, um, you've mentioned wine barrels, you've mentioned bullion ships, you've mentioned bales of cloth. How much was actually lost from shipwrecks? Do we have any sense of sort of the scale of what was happening here? I wish. Um we can guess at the nature of the loss. It's very hard to quantify it. Uh, there's no register of shipwrecks. There's no national register of claims of loss from shipwrecks. Uh, so there are just fragments of information. We don't even know for sure how many shipwrecks there were or what they were carrying. Uh, what we do have are local records and investigations and court cases which talk about some of them. So you can talk about the kinds of things that ships were carrying and the kinds of things that come ashore, um, but we can't set an overall value on that. Um, ships around the coast of England come from everywhere. Um, England is part of, by the 16th and 17th century, part of a global economy. So ships entering the English Channel might have come from the Baltic or from Russia, carrying furs or timber, uh, northern goods, uh, fish from the North Sea, fish from the Atlantic, coal from Newcastle, uh, all that stuff is coming down the English coast, is meeting all of the traffic from Scandinavia and the Netherlands. And remember, the Dutch have the largest merchant fleet of all, and the Dutch are globally active in the 16th and 17th century with maritime interests around the world. At ships from the Mediterranean, uh, Genoese ships, Italian ships, Spanish ships, uh, all sailing through English waters. And pirate ships too. Uh, so lawful commerce, uh, maritime raiders, uh, it's all floating around uh, the coastline of England. And when a storm breaks out or when a ship gets into trouble or when a ship is still handled, and um, unable to sustain itself at sea and crashes on the coast, all of that stuff from wherever uh, is available on shore. We have some reports of East India ships, ships that have come from um, Far East, laden with jewels and shells and diamonds and elephant tusks and exotic fabrics and all sorts of things suddenly floating around in the, the, the surf on the coast of Cornwall. So we can talk about the nature of it, but unfortunately, uh, I know no way to give you a sense of the actual scale of it, the, the totality of what was lost. Um, for the merchants, it can be um, catastrophic. It can be it can be the end of an enterprise as well as the end of a ship. Um, but we we can tell this on a sort of case by case basis, but not the kind of overall picture. Hmm. Um, one of the things we've not mentioned yet that you do talk about in the book is um, at the minute we've been talking about things coming ashore, right? The transfer from the maritime to the terrestrial, as you've described it. And of course, you've mentioned a bit about kind of people having small boats. So some idea that there might be things just offshore that can still be easily acquired. Um, but of course, stuff also sinks in a wreck. How did people in this time period, you know, was that just lost forever? Um, what what about the stuff that ended up underwater? Yeah. 
Well, before I get deep into that, I want to just mention that the division between land and sea is unstable and porous. It's, it varies with the tide. Uh, as the tide comes in, it covers ground, goes out, exposes it. And the, the law is uncertain, and lawyers can't decide who has entitlement to goods that are underwater at high tide, but perhaps exposed to the air at low tide. The foreshore is a zone of conflict. Um, and local traditions argue that lords of manners, their property extends either to the high tide line or to the low water mark or to offshore at some distance. And retrieval of materials in the sea underwater uh, was either legal or illegal according to local custom. One custom says uh, you can retrieve material from the sea as far out as a man on a horse can reach with a long pole. But they didn't say how big the horse was or how long the pole was. But you get the impression that the things that are just in the wash of the, the waves are retrievable with, with effort. Uh, another tradition says that the local landowner has rights to everything that can be seen as far out as sea as you could see a floating barrel. Well, they didn't really say what weather conditions there had to be or how good the eyesight was or how big the barrel was. So all these things are sort of fuzzy uh, about whether you can get into the water as well as drag things on land. There were ways of bringing boats in with grappling hooks. Um, you, you could follow up a wreck and try to retrieve items like cannon and bullions and things that had sunk to the bottom uh, with, with grappling hooks. Uh, so there's a, a long tradition of people using study primitive mechanics to try and retrieve things from underwater. Uh, that process becomes a little more sophisticated with, with winches and with cranes and with hauling apparatus developing in the 16th and 17th century. Things that are further out, things in deeper water, are pretty much lost unless you've got some kind of underwater um, breathing apparatus or you've got someone who knows how to do free diving in cold water uh, to get down and, and hook something up. Uh, so that's a problem. Uh, people know that things have sunk, particularly things of value, uh, brass or bronze cannon, iron cannon, uh, anchors, um, pieces of ship's furniture that have gone to the bottom, and ripped cargo, particularly uh, cargo of gold and silver, uh, which is in chests or sacks that's at the bottom of the sea. Now, if it's under you know, 10, 12 feet of water, perhaps you could get someone down there. But it's under, if it's under you know, 50 or 60 feet of water or further out, pretty much lost. Um, some of it might still be there. You know, modern, modern divers can, can get down 300 feet and can, can easily, not easily, but can conceivably retrieve uh, treasure that's been lost since the 16th or 17th century. Over the course of the period, people were experimenting with underwater apparatus. Uh, the Italians may have been pioneering this, but by the early 17th century, enough people in Northern Europe knew that you could either attach an airline to a, a barrel or um, a, a bell-shaped frame in which air was trapped and perhaps air could be pumped down, and you could get underwater and conceivably, with this uh, primitive air supply, uh, get some work done uh, hooking a, a line or a hook to a piece of wreckage. And over the 17th into the 18th century, people are experimenting with very primitive underwater diving apparatus, um, some, some of which you could sort of swim with and others which you were uh, stuck on the bottom with. So people are interested in this. They know that there's, there's treasure out there that's worth um, looking for. Uh, but the, the skills and the, the, the knowledge and the, the ability to do this, I think is very, very thinly spread. Uh, most of the wrecks around the coast of England that are in deep water uh, are stuck there until the modern era and perhaps perhaps forever. Fascinating. Thank you for helping us understand um, the liminality, I think, in a lot of ways of what is underwater versus not 
um, and how people were trying to deal with that. Um, as my penultimate question, I'd love to ask you about a quotation from the book where you argue that, quote, shipwrecks may have tested the social order, but left its architecture intact. Can you take us through that, please? Yeah, what a clever phrase. Um, <laughs> I'm arguing here against the historiographical tradition that developed in the 1970s, partly under the influence of E.P. Thompson, who is, and partly under a, a Marxist viewpoint, which sees class struggle as the primary agency in history, and sees shipwrecks as an opportunity for the poor and the dispossessed and the marginal uh, and the resentful to contest with property owners and the elite. So that early, early historiography frame shipwrecks as a kind of class struggle between landowners and ship owners on one side and a resistant, rather heroic wreckers on the other. And so I pointed out that that doesn't hold up when you look closely at the evidence from depositions and accounts of the actual experience on the beaches. And what I'm seeing is a much more, uh, not, a, not a rosy tinted view, but rather a, a sense that English society recognizes, people within it recognize their status boundaries and their status obligations. And that they recognize that there's a hierarchy and they know their place within it. And that doesn't, that's not heavily disrupted. Uh, people who are tenants or servants know that they are obligated to people who are landlords and who are masters. And small landowners like yeomen know that they are obliged to assist and defer to uh, people of higher status like gentlemen. And gentlemen defer to lords and lords defer to the crown. There's a whole system of hierarchy up and, up and down. Uh, it may not be without resentment, but it's basically what lubricates and makes the whole system work. And I'm arguing that that, that sustains uh, and is actually demonstrated, uh, it's exhibited in the activities of retrieving wreckage from beaches, uh, difficult conditions amongst multiple planets. Uh, so I'm arguing that the social order uh, is tested. There are opportunities for deception. There are opportunities for resentment. Um, there are opportunities to, um, to for boogie. But by and large, uh, I'm witnessing a, a collaborative set of arrangements in which people know their place, and that social order, that hierarchical social order, um, is sustained. The architecture of society, in a sense, remains intact. It's bruised from time to time. It's bruised during the English Revolution in the 1640s and 1650s, uh, when, when perhaps there's less deference on display. It may be bruised more in the late 18th century with the hardening of class divisions. But in the period that I'm primarily focused on, Elizabethan and Stuart England, uh, shipwrecks uh, illustrate how society works. They don't show it uh, breaking apart or heavily contested. So that's where that quote comes from. Uh, shipwrecks may have tested the social order, but left its architecture intact. And if you're interested in how, how English society works, looking at the response to shipwrecks is yet another way to get answers to those questions. Mm. Very much so. Um, and I think that that explanation not only answers the question, but does a fabulous job of summarizing some of the main points of the book, which leaves me only with my final question. Um, this book is obviously out and available for people to read. Um, do you have anything you might be working on now or looking to work on next, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's about shipwrecks that you'd like our audience to be aware of? I love your questions. I think, I think you're asking just the right questions for the right tone. Um, I'm not sure whether I have another major academic project uh, in me. I've written now perhaps 15 <laughs> books. However, <laughs> I'm not giving up. Um, there's, 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 there's more to say about maritime history. 
Um, the, the sources, particularly the records of the High Court of Admiralty, are so vast, uh, they're so rich, and they're so totally uncatalogued that there's all sorts of treasures in there. But I don't live in England anymore. I live in California. So I'm 6,000 miles away from the National Archives, and I can't regularly go down to Kew and look this stuff up. Uh, so I can't, I can't pursue that. Um, two things I can pursue. One, curious enough, you know, I'm interested in my own history. Uh, so I've been collecting my diaries and correspondence and calendars from the 1960s to the present. I've got a huge accumulation of, of my own stuff. Perhaps historians like to collect data or documents. So I'm looking at working respectively at my own documents and looking at diaries that I wrote when I was a student or wrote works that I collected and journals that I wrote in my early years of my career. And I'm trying to sort of put that all together and, and reflect on it as perhaps old people do and perhaps turn it into a memoir, whether that would ever see the light of day, whether it would ever find a publisher, who knows. But it's an interesting activity. Uh, for six months after finishing a book, I'm usually floundering and wondering what to do next. And then an, an idea ignites and I'm away. And I think I'm just on the brink of the new idea igniting and taking me away. So it may yet be another uh, piece of, of research. Uh, I'm interested in people, particularly in the reign of Charles I, people in the, the generation before the English Civil War, who endured the changes and stresses of that period without becoming opponents of the crown, without becoming radicals or dissenters. Uh, perhaps ordinary people trying to go about their lives while the world around them is is uh, hungry towards civil war. Um, so I'm just collecting examples of people who are calling it, for the time being, perplexed and troubled or loyal subjects of Charles I or something like that. People who felt perplexed, people who felt troubled, yet who felt fundamentally attached to and loyal to the church and state in which they lived. So people who are not on the ideological extremes, uh, who, but who have records. And um, where that leads at this point, I don't know, but I'm, I'm playing with it, I'm collecting material on it, and I might one day try to put it together as a book. So watch this space. <laughs> well, I think we will watch this space. And in the meantime, of course, listeners can read the book we've been discussing titled Shipwrecks and the Bounty of the Sea from Oxford University Press. David, thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise with us. Well, thank you.